You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined. It's kind of amazing that we're joined by Rick and Sean both. Welcome yeah. back, Rick. Achievement. Jo- joined, but not co-joined. Achievement unlocked. (laughs) Well, I guess before we get into how life has been going for Rick in particular, yeah, I I wanted to share about our topic at hand. For those that prefer to skip the personal fluff and get right into the topic, we're going to talk about a Facebook post in our crowdfunding nerds community that was very interesting and on some really cool discussion. And the topic is really the pre the earliest pre-marketing that you can possibly do for a product in essence boils down to market research research and development yes so how do you establish a, a degree of certainty that there's a market ready willing and able to pay for whatever you're making and so that's what this podcast is meant to be about first we're going to go over some nerd news and now it's time for nerd news so uh rick you have some really interesting nerd news in uh in your life and i can't wait to hear about it so yeah so tell us rick this news and i'll tee it up involves julie who is somebody special um so so it's been forever since i've been on the show my goodness what has gone on because this happened like month almost two months ago well, no, a month ago. Oh. <laughs> well, it would but, be awkward if you told our podcast listeners before you told like your parents and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on Christmas Eve evening, Christmas Eve evening, yes, I had the plans on asking uh, Julie to be my wife. However, I think I got too anxious and sick, and then that sort of fell through. <laughs> so <laughs> it happened on Christmas Day um, in Even front of better. her family. Yeah, in front of her family. I think Christmas Eve is more romantic, though. But yeah, so I, I dropped on one knee and asked her if she wanted to be my princess. Could you get back up? No. <laughs> She's really into Cinderella. She loves Disney and Cinderella. So she got, I got her a Cinderella uh, engagement ring from Disney. And wow. because the word Disney's on it, it's like 10 times more expensive than a regular ring. So yeah. do you guys have uh, Argos in, in the States? Argos. It's, it must be a UK brand. Air gas. We got air gas. It's, it's basically like a store with a catalog and you kind of go there and you type in like a code and if they have it in stock, then you can like buy it or they can oh. order it in for you. It, it usually has good prices. It's kind of like a warehouse kind of vibe. <laughs> I have a friend, this is no joke, went to like Pandora and asked asked for like their packaging. And I think he just paid like five bucks to get their packaging. And then he went to Argos and he just bought the cheapest jewelry he could get. Uh, <laughs> he, that's just wrong he, on he so many levels. Jewel, jewelry in like the, the Pandora packaging that's, and gave it to his girlfriend and she uh, didn't know any better. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. That's, that's like the rings I used to sell at the That's casino. why people divorce after two years. <laughs> <laughs> but she was so happy. So uh, awesome. Well, uh, congrats again. And and now let's move on to the way less cool things that Sean and I have been up to. Sean, you go first. I've been working on one spreadsheet to rule them all. We had a, a client who was like, I want all the things, as in Facebook and any other kind of advertising channels that you do. And I was like, okay, I have to draft a proposal. And then as I was drafting this proposal, I was like, 
why don't we why don't we have a spreadsheet of all the services of all these additional advertising channels where I can just whip it up, tick a few you know, tick a few boxes and then it automatically tallies and I can export that spreadsheet as a PDF and send it to the client. And it would take about three seconds <laughs> instead of like the amount of time I'm trying to like find all this information, compile it and do a specific sp- proposal for that one person. And I said, well, I may as well do that now because that's a really good idea. <laughs> so, and then you realize that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good idea, but it is a lot of work. So I'm in the process of compiling a massive spreadsheet that is listing different services, all of their services, all of their pri- updated prices. Because that's another thing is you have to then contact all these places and be like, can you send me your latest spreadsheet? Because yeah. it's the new year and I've got one that's like two years old and the prices are probably need to be updated. So I've been contacting all of them. So it's a lot of correspondence with these different companies. Then you have to process. It's been very interesting mm-hmm. because you learn very quickly of how good these different companies are and actually presenting their information. So it's given me some tips of how we could probably internally present our services to people. There's certain information I need, I want to know like straight away, like how many daily views does your thing get? How much reach, potential reach do, can we achieve? What's the CPM? Like all of them don't have the CPMs listed. So things like that. And then it gets to like their services. A lot of them have like a la carte systems, but they're the most confusing a la carte systems. You almost need like a doctorate degree to work out um, what to do. Um, so I've been then trying to get all this quite complicated and, and difficult a la carte information and compile it into a simple spreadsheet where all you have to do is check boxes and automatically tally. So it's a lot of work because you, you have to find the information translate the information which is just can be super confusing and jumbled and then put it into a spreadsheet in a way that actually makes sense mm-hmm. and not only that i'm doing another thing which to add because i don't know, I hate myself <laughs> another thing i'm doing <laughs> is that i'm doing an, an estimated daily cpm and just for clarity cpm means cost per 1000 impressions yeah uh, that means per 1000 people that view your thing don't necessarily click on it um how much are you paying and- so yeah. it's a good general way to determine how expensive the, the advertisements are. So right. the idea is because you have all these services. To compare one apples to apples, right? Exactly. So because you have all these services on one spreadsheet, you'll be, and if you select different, you tick different, so it's dynamic. As you tick different services, it will dynamically update how much your daily CPM is for that service, depending on what you've selected and, and the potential reads that those services have so that you, you can then make an informed decision. Oh, maybe I should have one less service on this like board game geek ads and put it in dice tower. I might get a better, might reach more people. Um, it's also interesting because you're able to see how much more expensive the other services are compared to each other. So yeah. you look at, wow, that's really expensive. Now, that might be justified because not all CPMs are the same, right? You might be, you might want to pay more for mm-hmm. fewer impressions somewhere where it's more valuable. But if you want to just do like a sort of broad message and like get it to as many people as possible, then you might want to go for a cheaper strategy. But n- nevertheless, the spreadsheet is going to help me or us uh, determine which is the the best price, which is the best bang for buck. I'm still compiling all of this, but uh, the plan is to eventually have um, a section where you in- insert your budget. You hit the check boxes and then it, it's it's sort of dynamic. So it says you have you know you have five hundred dollars left, where you, and you can figure out where you want to put it. It will tell you the the CPM, the daily CPMs, or the estimated potential reach that you might have for those services, and then it will then also split our fees and then also the, the fees of the services themselves. 
But yeah, let's let's move into our topic at hand then. That was that was kind of fun. There was uh, somebody in our crowdfunding nerds community, Ken Chavon. I hope I got your name right, Ken. Um, he asked a, this question, and it was such a an engaging uh, conversation. A lot of people came in uh, and commented, and he, you know, he he said that this type of pre product marketing can you know, is very common in certain industries, but he was wondering how it would apply to tabletop game development. And I would argue that it applies equally to any game development. And um, so his, his statement was that usually it seems a game is already completed or at least 90% developed before it's even marketed. And whether the public wants to buy it or not is often a surprise. And he asked what ways could we better test the market with concepts, ideas, etc. Or how could we market a game before it's been developed, thereby knowing whether or not it should even be developed? And, um, you know, he concludes by saying it seems like we should be doing some kind of substantive pre-marketing way before actually investing large amounts of time and money into designing and refining a game. But what can and should we do exactly? I thought that question was so great uh, that we just had to develop an entire podcast. I, I wrote like, you know, five massive paragraphs. And then realized, I just think we need to talk about this on a podcast. So what a what a question. Because I, I got lots of stuff, too, that's not covered in your your outline. What I find a lot of the time, game designers will say, I, you know, maybe they see a hole in the market and they're like, I wish I had a game like this, but that did something more innovative or that, you know, like people will say, I wish I had a card game like Magic the Gathering that was faster and that didn't involve getting unlucky with your draws or something like, like uh, of similar nature. And they go on about making a game. And the assumption is that other people are going to feel the exact same way that they feel. And that in my opinion is actually some valid pre-marketing. If you are experienced in your industry, you know, I mean, if you just, if the only game you've ever played in the world is Magic the Gathering, you know, just as an example, and you say, I need to make a game that's different than Magic, but you don't really know what else is out there, then you are not the right person to make that thing in all likelihood. Or rather, maybe you don't have the experience to make something innovative yet. And, you know, my my first thought is um, to know thy market, you know, engage and experience all you can in your niche so that you'll that, that you actually know if your thing is innovative or not. I mean, you could just be making another, like a Yu-Gi-Oh clone or a Pokemon clone or a Lorcana clone. Yeah, and that's always a hor- it's always horrible when you see, you know, someone who's very really passionate working on something and you kind of say, oh, that's exactly like this, but worse. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. kind of what you <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, oh yeah. you probably should have slowed down a little bit because this exists and the mm-hmm. thing that currently exists is better than what you're currently developing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so, the only way you can win in something like that is price. Like if you could lowball your product like way lower than the actual real product, then I could see a market in that. But otherwise, yeah, if right. it's the same thing, it ain't going anywhere. Yeah, like my game is pandemic, but it costs three dollars. Um, that's innovative. I yeah, don't know people, how you're gonna do it. It's gonna be a dollar yeah. tree. People could buy it. Print and play. Five five below. Yep. If you guys have ever shopped to five below. Yeah, actually, that's <laughs> that's true. I could see that happening. So yeah, what do you guys think? Well, it, it reminds me of a quote from Gabe Newell. Uh, which I've spoken of a couple of times on this podcast. He was giving a lecture in New Zealand when he was sort of trapped there during lockdowns. And he was in high school and he was talking about 
a process of iteration that game developers need to uh, implement as soon as possible and set up a system where they can spit something out, get user feedback, and then quickly implement changes and spit it back on. You sort of continue this cycle of iteration. And that's really going to help solidify and cement the trajectory of your game development because very quickly you'll have game gamers. And if they're honest and you do a good job with this process and setting this up, they're going to say, oh, it's like this, but worse. And then you can say, oh, it is. And then you might discover that and then you can research it and then you can then come back and make, make the adjustments so that it's not like that or better than that, so on and so forth. I think this is why it's key to sort of what we talk about here on the podcast, this virtuous cycle idea. It's to grow your game with your community so that you can start implementing this as soon as possible, which really, I think the first thing it has to start with is the theme and art. So investing early into a little bit of art might not be too bad of, of an idea if you want to do some tests and get the, get the ball, ball running. I know one thing that I've done in the past, um, you can only really do this if, you, if you're quite comfortable with like Facebook ads, for example. But whenever I've wanted to try like a personal project, I've sometimes run um, a short spat of Facebook ads. I've got created a page, done a little bit of branding just to get like a something that looks a little bit presentable, a little, little bit professional. Um, and then I've, I've, I've run ads for a product or a service or something that I'm testing to see how do people respond to it? Do, how are the click-through rates? How is the landing page conversion rate? What are the comments like? How are people responding and acting to it? It doesn't take too much time to see that, oh, I think this has some legs, but it's going to require a lot more work to get it to a position where it's actually going to be self-sustaining or it's going to you know, move at an accelerated rate. So that's something that you could certainly try, but you, you do need like a bare minimum for that. So if you're doing a game, for example, you need to probably have, you know, a, a, if nothing else, like a, a, a piece of art that's you know, illustrated well and um, a theme or some, some type of thematic text that you can... Mm-hmm see if that that works but um that, that is something you can certainly try i was actually going to say the same thing about facebook if, if you are familiar with facebook ads just do a quick facebook ad but um what you want to do um in this in this phase where you're trying to understand your market is you want to use the tools that are already available to you especially online because that's where your market is you're going to be marketing mostly online and then spread out from there um so um some seo wizard rick tips SEO Rick Wizard, whatever I am these days. Um, Google Trends. If you've never been to Google Trends, that's a really good place to check out to see if the topic of your game is trending or not. In fact, if you do just a basic uh, search on Google Trends for game uh, board games, you will actually notice, if you look at the past five years of history, that board games sell a lot more at the end of October, beginning of November through the end of the year. And you know, there's probably two things because of that. One is Christmas is coming up and people are buying gifts as board games, but also it's colder time of the year and people are staying home more and buying more Mm -hmm. board games. So if you have a specific niche, uh, like for example, I don't know, apocalyptic board game, zombie board game, type in zombie board games and see what comes up. See if it's trending up or down. See if it's a seasonal niche. That's another thing is um, a lot of people have these great ideas, but if they're not sold during the right time, uh, they're not going to make their numbers. Also uh, check on Kickstarter. See what's selling right now. What's what's popular Kickstarter? What kind of, you know, is your topic, is your genre of board game selling on Kickstarter? Is it is it making its budget? Uh, go to Facebook, do a search for the same thing. See what the latest comments are on that and see if it's active or not. You know, or Reddit. Reddit Reddit's a good one. Um, if you do a quick search on Reddit, you know, you could tell if something's really popular or not by like if it's like the last post was like from like, you know, 
three, four or five months ago, you know, it's not, there's nothing going on. It's dead. But if you see active, you know, posts nonstop, you know, each day, then you know that, you know, people, people are interested in that topic. So yeah, it's, research your topic online um, to see if it's something uh, viable or not. Now there, there could be something that you've come up with that's like new and never been done before and spectacular. So there may be a, you know, you may not be able to find data on something like that. Usually though, that's one in a million. If someone actually gets something really crazy and unique and it actually sells, but uh, you know, yeah, check, just go, go wherever you go, go on YouTube, whatever, you know, all the social media things, do your Google searches and see if it's still something people are looking for. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And the way that I tend to do this for myself is a little bit different from what you guys suggested. I tend to prefer being off technology if I can. I really value body language when I'm testing things. Uh, One of the problems when you're testing in person is that the people that you're in front of, you know, or that you're interacting with, that you've been interacting with for the last hour or whatever, maybe they're playing your board game or they're, you know, playing or talking about the thing with you. They like you. They want to be nice to you. And so a lot of the time they're not going to give you harsh feedback. And um, so one of the ways uh, I really like to to test in person with folks. And uh, one of the ways that I tell if somebody's interested in something is if they're leaning in, if they're, if they're not, if they're folding their arms, if they're paying attention or not, if they're fiddling around on their cell phone in between their turns and other things like that. You know, I look for engagement. I look for, you know, interaction between players. I, you know, and that sort of thing that, that matters a lot to me. You know, one of, one of the big things with deliverance early on, man, way back at kingdom con, the first time you and I did that, Rick, there were a lot of people that were like, this game's great. And they just were on their cell phones or they were talking to each other while some guy was thinking for 10 minutes to complete his turn. And it just really kind of killed the, um, the speed at which people were playing and also people's interest. And, you know, I, I was able to identify really, really important, you know, uh, pitfalls that caused the game to break or to fail and lose people's interest. And I think that is an essential piece of an evergreen game that it would not have any of those pitfalls. So that's one thing I really like. And then also um, you mentioned marketing online is very important. And I do agree. You can't get away from online marketing, but I really very much prefer in this early phase of research and development, uh, marketing or just talking in Facebook groups, you know, surrounding yourself by like with like-minded people and having discussions. A lot of people worry about, you know, giving the secret sauce of their idea away. Some people will say, well, I would like people to sign an NDA before talking about this idea that I have. And that's, first of all, that's not going to work. But um, second of all, you don't need to spill the secret sauce and give them the recipe in order to talk about the game. You know, I, for example, I thought that the secret, well, rather the innovation of deliverance was the way that the darkness card system interacted with uh, the tactical combat so that you can't just swing your sword and win the game uh, by swinging your sword harder. And which is one of the, you know, normal things that causes problems with these sorts of skirmish games. Like if you can hit something hard enough, then you can win, you know, you can beat any encounter no matter what curveballs they throw at you. This is a snake boss. Ah, you killed it in one hit. Well, here's the Pharaoh boss. You killed that in one hit. It's like not, it just didn't feel different, even though all the mechanics are different. But if you're able to just finish it in the same way, of course, it's it's not really very, doesn't feel innovative. So anyway, I kept that private 
but I would talk and ask all sorts of questions, you know, um, you know, the theme, the angels and demons theme and, and that sort of thing. We, you know, I was able to get a lot of, I, in fact, before I spilled the secret sauce, um, of the game, I had over a thousand people on my email list just from in-person local conventions, as well as talking about it online. And it made a huge difference in, in the end. So anyway, don't need to belabor the point. Chris, Chris Birch threw, threw in his two cents on this comment thread as well, which I think is important because he obviously has a lot of experience developing new tabletop games as a found, co-founder of Modifius, and they produced a lot of new content. And he gave some, some points. I'm going to sort of paraphrase them here. So he says, which we've sort of covered here, one, it must be fun. And he, he talked about the need to play test. And people need to want, people should be saying, ooh, let's play that again. I want to play that again. It's not good enough for them to say, yeah, it's a good game. It's decent. And then they forget about it. They, they You're trying to create this experience where, ooh, let's, let's do that again. Or let's try this. Or that's kind of what, what that's kind of the atmosphere you, you want to develop. The next thing he talked about was include themes and mechanics that people like. So again, you know, Richard, you talked about researching what's popular on Kickstarter, looking at subreddits, uh, looking at Google Trends and seeing what are people talking about and what's sort of trending, what are people interested in and trying to use some of those incorporating it into a theme. Then you talked about having a, it needs to be a good price and then have good marketing and those sort of things that you sort of use to set up your, your game for success. Yeah, and when it comes to marketing, you definitely want to sell what makes your game unique. Like like you were saying, you want to you know have like the fun mechanics in there, but there's got to be something that sets you apart. You know, like for example, back in when I was growing up when I was a kid, there were two video arcade games out there that were really popular. Uh, one was Street Fighter, and for those who don't know, it's just a little arcade fighting game where people fight other people. But then also what came out after that, and it was very highly successful, which a lot of people know more now because it's the franchise, I think, has gotten bigger, is Mortal Kombat. And what made Mortal Kombat different from Street Fighter is blood, guts, and finish him. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> where it had a unique ending where if you knew the secret code to do at the last second, Fatality. you know, a crazy, yeah, crazy thing will happen. And, that, you know, that's just like instant, like... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, bliss for the person who's playing. Yeah, it's a little reward, attaboy. Yeah, it's the only game I know where you can rip someone's ribs out and stick them in their eyes to, to kill them. <laughs> yeah, or pull, yeah. Her, pull her spine out. You know, or end with a friendship, stuff. which is like a making a rainbow and sitting down or something. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that. <laughs> but yeah, so you want to definitely focus on what makes your game unique. And you know, one thing I really loved about what Chris Birch said, I mean, they they have made a lot of games lot of tabletop rpgs a lot of board games and uh, they have over 70 employees or maybe it is 70 employees in their company um which i learned when we interviewed him uh very recently and uh they said that they well he said that they don't make anything that they're not passionate about they don't even start on anything that they're not passionate Mm -hmm. about and um i think that that's a huge key because it's what's gonna number one push you to care to improve it if you find out that your game isn't being received very well, then, you know, you, of course, have the option to just kind of lay the the standard down and pick something else up and work on something else. But somebody who's passionate about a project is going to find a way to make it better. He also talked about setting trends, not, not following them. So there's an element where you sort of have to take the lead, take a bit of a risk and put yourself out there with this new idea. If you're, if you're constantly trying to trace it, uh, follow a trend, then you just end up copying what already exists. It's not going to stand out in the marketplace. It's going to, I think a, lo- a lot of cinema has gone down this path where a formula of success has been developed. And all films are pretty much all the same now. 
the same sort of you know beats and similar characters no one's sort of going outside the box and trying something different and as a result i think cinema has generally mm-hmm. been harmed as a result i i have no personal desire to go see films in the cinema <laughs> rarely because they're all kind of the same now you know? mm-hmm. reboot of spider-man reboot yeah it's all different Batman. you know yeah. superhero I just, spin-offs yeah. and like okay i'm not too interested i've seen it once you've seen it all yeah. the the idea behind innovation it if you're like hey Frosthaven did really really well and they just shipped out a hundred thousand units i'm going to make a really big campaign game just like Frosthaven. well the problem with that line of thinking is it's not inherently bad on its own, but if you're looking at Frosthaven and thinking you can make something 5% better and it's going to make tons of money, you're likely mistaken. And that's because you're not leading trends, you're following. I would say that Cephalofair, the company that made Gloomhaven and Frosthaven and whatnot, those, they are the industry trend leader in, you know, in that that gigantic campaign game experience campaign games are quite popular nowadays. Um, it wasn't always that way. I want to say Oathsworn was one of the bi- first really big games. I know that, uh, awaken realms, um, has done a couple of really big campaign games that, that are very popular. Now you've got a lot of, uh, you know, some older campaign games like the LCGs, like Arkham horror and things like that. Of course, dungeons and dragons as it's, you know, 1.0, it was probably the first, campaign game that i can think of and then text-based rpgs on online and all of that there's been a lot of innovation since then but you can't look at something and say i'm going to make something just like that but you know it's going to be 180 missions instead of just 90 or whatever (laughs) it's not gonna work that well it has to innovate and and personally what i'm seeing the trend that i'm seeing are that the best games the most innovative games are kind of a, moving a little bit away from a really, really big box experience. And we're starting to see shorter, punchy experiences that, you know, using the campaign game as an example, one of the places that we try to innovate in deliverance is the main mode of delivery. We have a campaign and it's very robust and there's kind of a new game plus for players that really want to play a ton of games in the campaign. You can play, you know, 30 missions um, with one character, but the the for me the highlight of the game is really the skirmish mode where it's like you can sit down and have in essence a random battle that feels hard and different every time and and that sort of thing it's not it's not the type of game that you can only play in a campaign which i actually think is starting to become a little bit boorish to uh communities at large you'll still find successful things but i personally would give you the advice of make the thing that you're passionate about make it the best version of itself that it can be and don't try to say, well, Frosthaven did it this way, or Gloomhaven did it that way, or or whatever. Um, Tainted Grail did it this way. You need to make your own thing. No, and don't don't be afraid to fail. You know, part of being a business owner is you kind of have to take a few risks. Um, be cautious and careful, of course. You're trying to set things up to have the most possible success, but there's an element where you're going to have to invest in your own idea and you have to be an early adapter to a, a new technology or a new game that hasn't really proven itself yet. And that's the essence of being a game developer. You know, I remember when Steam first came out, I was an early adopter. I got on it before a lot of my friends did. And they were all kind of like, oh, this is weird. You know, I don't want to 
you know, I remember buying Steam games for people who sent sending them Steam keys. They're like, what is this? They just threw it in the trash. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not a gift. It's like, you fool. <laughs> you know, because a lot of people, like, they don't really see what it potentially could be. This idea of, you know, putting codes in and getting games seems strange when usually they, you know, at the time, people used to go to a store and getting a CD. And, you know, that's kind of how you got to mm-hmm. got your games. So, but, you know, now look at Steam. It's like, it's so mainstream yeah. now. It's like the number one sales platform for games. But, you know, back then, people didn't trust it. You know, in the early days, it was like, this is weird. So, you know, being an early adapter of things can can have its benefits. And it might yeah. seem foolish to some people, but given it, give it enough time, give it, give it the right audience, then it's really going to strike, strike a, a match. Yep. And, you know, uh, one thing I'll also say, just to qualify something that I meant, that I said earlier, is that because a, a very popular game does a thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's bad. Sometimes things that are too different are kind of bad because they're they're too unfamiliar. Rather than taking something that people are familiar with and innovating on that, it's uh, you know being too different can actually cost you quite a lot. So and and another thing is those big games, those 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 big um, you know force they're like they're like the big games online that you see that are selling that are popular they're like they're like freight trains and the thing is is they can't change their course so or stop on a dime so if they did come up with a crazy new idea for their game most likely 90 percent of the time they would not implement it because it would cause a split in their audience you know and this happens all over software all over games it's 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 you know you you have there's a brand and all of a sudden they offshoot and then all of a sudden you know it people get crazy and then half the people leave and you know it becomes like a little flame war or maybe nobody's happy right yeah and then i I mean look at kick look at look at kickstarter it the all with with the all the stuff they wanted to change and that became a drama issue and or paypal with their policy changes i mean anything like that yeah. Um, causes you know division, and so and this is also popular in video games. There's a lot of video games that have tried to change a little differently, and their core audience is like, nope. So yeah, first one I thought of is Elder Scrolls Online. Um, yeah, when fact, you know, they're you have, coming out with the new, they're coming out the new, isn't it this today, tomorrow, sometime uh, this week? Ship Theory Games is coming out really soon with a version of like Elder Scrolls Online, the Zenimax license that Ship Theory yeah. Games has. And I, you know, Elder Scrolls is on the brain right now because I just, I've been playing uh, Elder Scrolls Skyrim, the adventure board game from uh, Modifius that just arrived. And uh, with, and that's really fun. But I played Elder Scrolls online for a couple of years with my wife, you know, back in, I want to say like 2014, 2015. And people hated it because it wasn't this gigantic, you know, it was a gigantic world, but the world wasn't filled with content in the same way that, you know, under every rock is an, a side quest in Elder Scrolls Skyrim. And <laughs> everyone, ha, you know, is worth talking to and stealing from. And, you know, you break in every house, you find a cool thing. And and there's so much lore everywhere. And Elder Scrolls Online had to balance that amount, rich amount of content with the MMO experience. And so you had to have PvP. You had to have, you know, raid and other things like that. And in addition to this... Uh, rich content and it ended up that you know the people that play games like world warcraft were kind of mad that it didn't have more pve content and the people that were all about that single player epic skyrim experience were mad that it didn't have enough behind every stone and and tree you know yeah and and, and i mean just to, to summarize real quickly what i was the point i was trying to pass across is just because a large ip or brand is doing it 
doesn't mean it's the best thing to do or it's, you know, something that you should do. Like I was saying, they probably won't change because, you know, that's their that's their brand. However, you know, like I said, if you if you're really passionate about something and you think there's a better way to do a mechanic or or something, you know, a twist in in your in your project that offsets you from that um, major company, I would go for it. You know, talking about, you know, splitting your audience and um, it reminds me of Naughty Dog, which is a developer I've, I've talked about, but they sort of became popular with their sort of stretch and pull animation style video games, platformers like Crash Bandicoot. And they went to the PlayStation 2, they developed the Jack series. And then when they switched, when they went to the PlayStation 3, they switched from the stretch and pull animation kind of animation style to a very hyper-realistic style. And that brought a division in their community. But what, and it left a lot of people down who, who like that, you know, like kind of goofy. I'd say like Looney Tunes style animation, kind of like non-realistic and fun. The community has recently backwards engineered the original programming language of those games and it's called the open goal project and it's it's, freak, it's crazy they get they got this game which is like 20 years old now at 21 years old um more 22 years old now and they've reprogrammed from the ground up this programming language and they've recreated the game and it looks exactly wow. the same and now you have people, the community, making mods for this game. So it's it's just, it's insane. You can run it on your computer, and it's it's not emulation. It's like they've recreated the game. So it's almost like kind of like AI art, you know, where it's not like re- recreating the images. It's actually scanning the image and using the data points. Well, this is what they've done. They've like recreated. I'm still. It's probably still a bit dodgy in terms of copyright because they're still using names and like the same likeness and things, but. It's, it's just phenomenal that a community that was so passionate and wanted this game to exist and kind of felt left behind has <laughs> recreated the game and is now modding it. It's, it's pretty pretty insane. Yeah, that's like Temtem. I don't know if you guys have heard of Temtem. Yeah. But, uh, you know, someone wanted a Pokemon uh, MMORPG where you can interact with people and play instead of solo because Pokemon's always solo. And so they created Temtem. And, of course, you know, it's it's it looks exactly like like well sorry not exactly but you literally when you look at it it's like oh this is pokemon but it's not because everything's a little different the names have been changed and so it's all good and they've been on for years and now they're on you know gaming platforms such as nintendo switch um they've been on steam as a uh pre-release for a while but now it's all now they're past version one and it's all on the on the consoles but yeah it's just you know some guys thought that hey you know what i really like pokemon but i think it'd be better if uh you know we got something different in there that's what they did and it worked out and they've made millions and millions and millions of dollars off the concept that's excellent getting really specific with your niche is very very good when your product has an a group of hardcore fans that are like diehard fans that love it and that play you know that would play the prototype 150 times that is a great great sign to me as a marketer because I think, okay, there's a group of people out there that absolutely loves this thing. When you have, when the best you're able to come up with is people that, you know, that they like your thing and it's okay and it's, it's good and whatnot, but it doesn't really inspire that fire passion. Um, that means that your project is going to be a little bit harder to market because you, you just don't want to be generic and general. Your game is not for everyone. And if you make it for everyone, then nobody's going to buy it. So with that said, you could, you might have haters 
you know, a game that has hardcore fans is just as likely to have haters. I know a lot of people hate on, you know, using Gloomhaven Frosthaven as an example. They're like, no, I don't want to play that. That's terrible. Or, or Twilight Imperium 4, you know, somebody said, I don't want to spend 16 hours to play a single game. And I would totally do that. Wingspan is probably the one of the biggest games of the last decade. And it, you know, there are a lot of people out there that just don't like it. You know, I would personally, I, I, ha- I own Wingspan and I've played a couple of times with my wife and, uh, you know, one, ex- one extra time with a group. And it's fun, but it's just not my favorite type of game that I, you know, really want to play. When I have time to game, I want to play games like Elder Scrolls Skyrim or, you know, things like that. And, you know, if I have more than an hour to play, that's the type of thing I want to go for. And I think that it's really good when you have a specific audience that you're talking to. And so I say that to say that your messaging, your pitch really matters. You want your pitch to be, to appeal very, very much to your hardcore fan and you don't necessarily need to exclude people from your, you know, using your pitch. Like my game is for men. And if you are a woman, you will not like it. <laughs> don't do that. But, you know, let people qualify or disqualify themselves based upon your pitch. And the only way to do it right is to hone your messaging over time by giving your pitch a lot and seeing how your audience reacts to it. With Deliverance, I would uh, sometimes when I would talk to, let's say, you know, uh, uh, the secular, a secular audience, I would talk about things that they would just kind of feel maybe deliverance is just going to be a preachy game, uh, because I'm talking about the prayer cards and that kind of thing. Or maybe, um, I'm talking to a religious audience and they feel like deliverance is going to be preachy because of the prayer cards. Well, then I need to change my messaging because it just didn't resonate. Whereas if I just simply shut up and let them play it, both groups love it. And so what I really need to figure out or what I needed to figure out at, at the time, this is a couple of years ago now, was how do I speak in a way that shows people what it is without giving people a false expectation or something that is not realistic or not what the game is meant to be and and that sort of thing. And, and you know, of course, nobody is really looking to play a game that is like religion, the board game. Um, or politics, the board game, we don't really like to play things like that as a general rule. So, um, how do I describe what it is accurately without, you know, which in a way that excites my hardcore target market, I think that matters a lot. And that's so it's worth so much money later on. If you figure that out early, then you get to, you know, you don't have to spend, you don't have to waste a bunch of money on Facebook ads to learn what people like. Another big uh, thing that I really liked that you said was about qualifying people. And um, a lot of people freak out because they'll build like a mailing list or have like their Facebook group. And all of a sudden they'll send a message out about their game. And all of a sudden all these people unsubscribe and they freak out. They're like, oh, my God, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Well, now, if most of the people unsubscribe, maybe you are doing something wrong. But, if, you know, it's just a handful. Uh, then you, what you're doing is you're pre-qualifying and disqualifying those who would be, may or may not be interested in what you offer. And when it comes to that, you know, you know, um, I know if we're moving light right along here, but you know, you want to be as specific as you can. You want to say exactly what it is. Um, and like, you know, for example, like let's say you, you, you really, you're selling a pill, a vitamin, maybe you're selling a vit- vitamin C, you know, for health online. And of course, you know, 
And this is this, you know, being specific is very important, especially when you're doing online marketing. You know, every, every day, millions of people are searching for vitamin on the search engine, on Google and stuff. However, just because they're searching for vitamin doesn't mean they're searching for your vitamin. They might want a vitamin that, you know, helps them lose weight. They might want a vitamin that, you know, you know, I don't know, does magic. Um, <laughs> even even in the realm of multivitamins, you've got multivitamins for men, for yeah, pregnant women, women elderly, children. senior. Yep. And, and so you, you want to be natal multivitamin is the absolute best vitamin on the market, but are men going to buy that one? No, because it's labeled prenatal multivitamin for women, right? And yeah, your your search group is going to be a lot smaller. The people finding it is going to be a lot less, but there are people that are targeted to what you're offering. And so, yeah, um, that I mean, you just got you have to do it that way because otherwise you're going to get oh look at all these people who are might be interested in my game, and then all of a sudden they don't subscribe, they don't sign up, they don't you know do your Kickstarter, and it's because you were too broad, and that's why the, these messages that you send out are are very very important because you're pretty much you're you're narrowing your niche to exactly what it should be, and you're disqualifying people who are looking maybe in the general idea of what you offer, but not quite. And so that's a good thing because you're, 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 you're getting the people who are going to be, you know, want to play exactly the game that you're offering. Yeah. I think that the cover of a game and, you know, in the case of a video game, the teaser trailer or the demo, but you know, for a board game, it's as simple as the box cover. When I look at that box cover, I want the experience inside the box to be, be what that box cover makes me feel. Um, so with Deliverance, you've got the these five angels f- battling against hordes and hordes of demons and looking, you know, hopelessly out outnumbered. What you know, and and the the experience, in essence, that is promised by the cover of the box, is delivered in, in spades when you open the box and play. It, it really feels like you hoped it would feel. And I think that a lot of games, uh, another one that I can think of that I absolutely love that's dripping with theme is Dead of Winter. It's one of my one of my favorite uh, co-op experiences is, is Dead of Winter because it just feels like you're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. And the, you know, the box cover looks like it makes it look like you're going to be in a zombie apocalypse and you're not going to be, you know, this epic hero that is mowing down zombies left and right. But it's it's a game about survival. You're just trying to survive. And so what the box cover promises, the inside of the box really, really delivers. The saying has been around forever. And they always say, the old saying is, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, guess what? 90% of people don't follow that and they do judge the book by the cover. In fact, I am super, super guilty of doing the same thing. I look at the, the cover art of the board game. I'm like, up, oh, yep, this appeals to me. Up, oh, nope, this doesn't appeal to me. I'm not a big fan of gore and apocalyptic games. I do like the shows though. You know, Last of Us came out. That's actually pretty cool. I'm enjoying that. Um, literally, like I read a lot of books. I read a lot of fi- sci-fi sa- fantasy books. You know how many sci-fi fantasy books there are out there in the world? There's like billions of them. I literally, because there's so many books, I literally, the first thing I look at, because when you're scrolling through, you know, I'm not going to read the summary of every single book. I am looking at that cover to see if it intrigues me or not. And then if it does, then the next step is to read the summary of the book, you know, a little teaser. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. and then you go and you decide if you want the book or not. Unless your board game is about intrigue and, you know, whatever, you know, and you just have a black box and, you know, it's a secret. Um, you got to have something that compels, that tells your story the way you want to tell your story and gives a feeling of what your game's about. You know, you want to make sure your, your art matches your game and the art portrays what your game is about. 
Um, cause otherwise, you know, you'll, you'll send cross signal messages. People buy it and then crap on you saying that it's a horrible game. Cause it wasn't what they thought it'd be, but yeah, you know, people that's, do that's judge actually your my thought is the, the, when somebody buys the game and plays it the first time and then they, the, the expectation didn't match the experience that that is a fan lost the opportunity to gain that fan. You, you squandered it by giving them a false expectation or uh you know what would be in there and so how how would this apply to the earliest market research and pre-marketing i think the first way is in the in what you say about the product or about the experience that you intend so when your game is just uh let's say if you're making a tabletop game of some kind you know rpg or board game you're gonna have cardboard and you know drawn with pens pencils and crayons and maybe you're going to borrow um, minis from your War of the Ring game like I did. And uh, you're going to tell people, hey, this dwarf holding a hammer is actually called a fallen seraph. And he is a really bad angel. Uh, and this is what, or, you know, fallen angel. And this is what his abilities are. So you're, I'm, I'm trying to explain without, you know, all of the assets being done just at the earliest possible moment. This is what this dude represents and if the yeah so i'm setting the expectation in in as early a scenario as i can imagine and if my player doesn't feel like that is what they're doing if they feel like all they're doing is pushing cubes around a board then it's just you know i something's wrong right yeah and and marketing and back in the old days they don't they don't talk about it now because you know things have changed back in the old days they called that your elevator pitch come up with a 30 to 60 second elevator pitch of exactly what you want to portray to your audience about what your game is and go from there um they don't call it an elevator pitch anymore because no one rides elevators apparently going back to the initial point of being experienced in your little niche there is a reason that successful people or, or rather people that make amazing products a lot of the time they didn't just do it by random chance. Sometimes, you know, like the guy that, uh, I can't remember the guy that made code names, but he created it in like a few weeks and it was published within six months. And it's one of the biggest games in the world now uh, because he, he, but he said like, it can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. You know, this, this game concept, sometimes it works out that way, but a lot of the time and most of the time, it's somebody that that has played a lot of games, you know, video games, board games, tabletop, uh, you know, role-playing games. You need to be experienced in these things in your, whatever your niche is in order to make a really, really great vert, you know, really, really great game. And part of that is knowing what's out there and experiencing things and seeing a hole in the market and, and all of that. But, um, and all that comes down that, to passion, doesn't it? Cause if you're passionate yeah. about gaming, then you are going to play lots of games and then you yep. are then going to know what exists and then you are going to know what, defects there on the market that you can fill yeah you know i was um so i was talking to somebody that was pitching me an idea for for their game and uh it was a very it was kind of like a a little bit of like a deck builder more like hearthstone but a tabletop game and i was listening to them and hearing their pitch and at the very end of what their you know they had about a five minute presentation that they made for me with powerpoint slides and everything like that And at the very, very end, the very last thing that they said on their very last slide was, I was a professional MOBA gamer for a year 
and I toured and I played, I think it's infinite crisis or something. I can't remember exactly. I forget the name. It's not a game I played. I was league of legends guy, but they were a professional gamer that all of a sudden made me so much more hopeful that they, and they're making a tabletop card game. Um, it made me so much more hopeful that they actually will be able to make a game that's good because I trust that that experience kind of makes them elite in their understanding of how to have really tight mechanics that feel competitive and interesting. And um, they have a large library of experiences in their head. And yeah, they know, you know, they know what playing at the highest level of a particular game feels like. So they can recreate that feeling in a card game form, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I went on to play uh, their card game and had a, had a blast and I actually ended up winning. I beat them at their own game. But uh, it was. <laughs> it's, it seems like that's always the way it works as a designer. You always lose your game because you're trying to help people and that kind of thing. And I think he just didn't realize I was a, you know, I played a lot of card games and knew what I was doing. He didn't realize that early on enough. I mean, I gave him the time because he told me he had that much experience. And I'm really glad I did. It's a game I'm considering publishing. And that sums it up for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. If you enjoyed our podcast and would like more information about how to take your Kickstarter and crowdfunding board game to the next level or video game, we do video games, check out our new marketing course. It's exclusive for you, our podcast listeners, by going to crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash course and use our special coupon for you, podcast 2023. That coupon will give you 65% off the course's full price, which is currently $389. So you will only pay $210. And that coupon is good from now until the very end of February. So once again, check out our great marketing course, crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash course, and use the coupon code podcast2023. And as always, if you have any questions about your podcast or some podcasts, woo, if you have any questions about your Kickstarter or anything in the crowdfunding niche, visit our crowdfunding community on Facebook, um, our crowdfunding nerds community. Just do a search for that and you can join our hundreds of hundreds of peoples that will help you answer and get you on your way. And until then, stay cool, stay healthy and stay nerdy.